0: It was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for all your hard work. Can I say, just say music people? Thank you for all your hard work and the practice you put in the middle of the week and just the effort and the prayers. It's very appreciative and I, I thank you. I do. I thank you. Um, before we look at uh, Philippians 3, would you pray with me just for a minute here? Well, Father, we thank you for this great blessing to be here together on the last day of this year. We thank you for your grace that you have shown us, continue to show us, and we expect you to show us in the future because that is who you are. You love to lavish gracious gifts upon your children. And so this day, as we open your word, we ask, Father, that you would lead us through it, Teach us, press it deep down into our soul and our being and our mind and cause us to to follow this text. We thank you for your word and how clear it is. Now would you assist the preaching of it, Lord. Use it for your glory and the good of your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open to uh, Philippians chapter 3 if you would. Philippians Chapter 3. And before we look at the, the text here, just some introductory ideas and remarks here. So, as we come to the close of another year, it is only natural for us to examine how this past year went for us. Did we reach our goals? Would be questions that we would ask ourselves. If you have a business, you know, did your business reach its goals? Did the church? That, that you were a part of this church, did we reach our goals? Did, did our family reach the goals that we had set for it in our personal life? Did we reach our goals? As we evaluate the last 12 months, we see where we are, and we will make the adjustments necessary. And as followers of Christ, we will have certain goals that are uniquely Christian, say, Um, at least I would categorize them that way, compared to the unconverted. For instance, you may have a goal to read through the entire Bible two times next year instead of one. You may want to spend more time in prayer and meditation. You may want to share the gospel with more of your friends, your family, and your neighbors and the people around you. You may have the goal of, of giving more money to gospel ministries to advance the gospel and the kingdom of God. Those are all good things. Those are all, those are all noble Christian goals to have. And we may have one or two of those together or none actually. But one sure common goal we will have is to glorify God in everything we do. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And to add to that, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians that our ambition is to please him. As he says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether home or absent, to be pleasing to him. We, we, we will seek to glorify God in whatever we're doing. We, As Christians, we will seek to please Him in whatever we are doing. So as we come then to the end of this year and prepare for the next, I want to exhort us to keep on, to continue on, to not grow weary, not pull back. Now before I finish that sentence, pull back from what, I want to let you think about that for a minute. As our title suggests... No time to rest. This is no time for you to take a break. This is no time for you to go on vacation. It's no time for you to take the day off. You must not stop. But wait a minute, preacher. You sound like a little dictator, right? Doesn't the Bible allow for rest? And sure enough, it does. You know your Bible well enough that Genesis chapter 2, that God, after six days, busy creating he rested on the seventh and not because he was tired but he ceased from creation on the seventh and that was a pattern for the fourth commandment that of the law of moses in exodus 20 that was behind the sabbath day he says to the jews there that you shall work six days and rest on the seventh that is the sabbath sabbath rest In the Gospels, even, our Lord had his weary disciples come away from the crowds to take a break from ministry as they began just to wear down. Come away and take a break, in essence. So, certainly there are some things to rest from. You should rest from your labor at times. You should rest from your work, your, your vocation. You should take a break when needed. The Bible would allow that and strongly suggest that. You most certainly should take a break from work and go on vacation with your family. You should do those things. But there are some things that you should not rest from. For instance, you should not rest from loving and serving your spouse and your children, right? You should not rest from loving your neighbor. You should not rest, here's a good one. You should not rest from breathing or you'll die, right? Or you should not rest from drinking water. That's a good thing to keep doing, okay? So, as our title says, No Time to Rest, it has a a point to it, And, and the passage that we have before us in Philippians 3 compares the Christian life to a race and the Christian to a runner. And like the Olympic runner, to win the prize, you must be singular in your focus and give the maximum effort. So, obviously, during the race is not a time to rest. So therefore, beloved, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are born again, a believer in him, you are in the race. But are you running? Are you competing? Are you keeping on? Some Christians, I think, forget that they're in a race, and they act as almost that the race is finished. The race is done. And this idea of a race that we will look at soon, is one of the favorite illustrations of the Apostle Paul who must have had a great affinity for sporting events, praise the Lord. He probably would have been a Raider fan, I'm sure, because he was a very mature Christian. Um, (laughs) You laugh. Why wouldn't he? That shows more grace, right? Anybody could be a cowboy fan. this. (laughs) This is the one that's got its eye out on you. (laughs) We know pirates when we see one. Um, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 says this. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win, he says. This illustration is also seen in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Listen to what the writer there says. Therefore, since we we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, laying aside every weight in the sin which so easily entangles us, then this exhortation, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. So this idea of a race run, is one that Paul uses much. In our text, in Philippians 3.12, the Apostle Paul is concerned that his readers not grow spiritually complacent. He He doesn't want them. He's trying to keep them from spiritual laziness or inactivity as though they had already run the race that the race was over. He wants to inform them that that is not true. He exhorts them to give their maximum effort, we're going to see, because the race is still in progress. And he is, his exhortation, the, the means, the manner by which he does this, is he gives himself as the pattern to follow. Look at 3.14, the key verse of this passage which is 12 through 16, the climax, the hub, the theme is verse 14, and this governs this text. Look at verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Our passage, which is 12 through 16, is governed by that verse, and Paul is the testimony. Paul says, look at me. I'm the example to follow. But that passage there is in a wider context that began in verse 2 and goes to the end of the chapter and it's for us to get a grip and grasp of what he is exhorting in three twelve through 16 we need to place it in its wider context look at verse 2 for instance it says there that in verse 2 beware of the dogs beware of the evil workers beware of the false circumcision These are Jewish false teachers who are bothering this church with the false gospel of justification by works of the law. We won't take time to flesh that out. Afterwards, we can talk. But the book of Galatians dealt with this for six chapters. Here are Judaizers saying you must keep the law of Moses in order to be justified. They are teaching justification by works of the law. ...of the law, not by faith alone. They, these Judaizers, were guilty of putting confidence... ...in their flesh for justification. They were trusting in their own efforts, their own works... ...their own supposed religious achievements. Okay? Christ, God must receive them because we're so good at what we do... ...sort of thing. Okay? We're actually doing God a favor by coming to church. Those kinds of people. right? They were trusting in themselves and in their acts of obedience. The apostle... ...please now is using his personal testimony to combat the error of works righteousness. Because in verses 4, 5, and 6, you notice here that he speaks about himself. He says in verse 4... Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. So he says if these Judaizers want to trust in their flesh and their works, he's comparing them to himself and he says I am far beyond them. I am far greater in my Phariseeism than they ever thought they could get to. And if they want to trust in their flesh, I should far more but he uses himself to combat the error because he goes on to say, notice what he trusted in in verse 5 and 6, circumcised the eighth day, nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness in the law, found blameless. Okay? This is this context that's working toward our passage. Paul was a self-righteous Jew who trusted in himself for the road to Damascus because on the road to Damascus he met the Lord Jesus and everything changed look at verse 7 please but in contrast to the previous verses whatever things those are verses 4 5 and 6 were gained to me those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ okay He met Christ on the road to Damascus. It so transformed, it so radically changed his mindset that immediately he counted as loss all these things that he was trusting in for his right standing before God. And in verse 8, please, he goes on, More than that, I count, present tense, all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Okay, so Paul is saying to these legalists and to the Philippians who are being persuaded by the legalists to fall into legalism. Don't trust in your flesh. If anyone could have, I should have, but I didn't. And when I saw Christ on the road to Damascus, when I met Jesus Christ, I jettisoned everything overboard. I took all those things that I trusted in and I threw them overboard so that I could have Christ. That's verse 8. Okay. notice again what it says in 8 more than that I count all things lost to be in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish but dung so that I may gain Christ now that last line in verse 8 is, is going to carry us down to our text he counts all things as rubbish all things as dung manure and he uses a very graphic term how Unless you're growing roses, how how good is manure for you? Yeah, right? Well, if you're not growing roses, it ain't worth a lot. And Paul says everything outside of Christ is scubula is 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 manure in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Everything in his life and everything that could ever come into his life that supposedly would assist him to righteousness is nothing but manure compared to knowing Jesus Christ. This is what he says, okay? That's verse 8. And notice again, I count everything as rubbish for what purpose in verse 8? Look at the phrase at the end. So that I may gain Christ. That's the result of the purpose. So in other words, if he doesn't count anything as rubbish, or if he doesn't count this one thing as rubbish, that will hinder, get in the way of gaining Christ, according to that text. It gets in the way. Now go on. Verse 9, the second result of counting it as rubbish is that I may be found in him. So that I may gain Christ, I may be found in Christ. I count everything rubbish so that I may be found in Christ. And the the glory of that is his righteousness is mine. That's what the rest of verse 9 says. But then look at the beginning of verse 10. The third result of this counting is rubbish, all things, verse 10, that I may know him, that I may know intimately, experientially, Jesus Christ. What this is saying is that if whatever you're not counting as rubbish comes into your life, it impedes, it interferes, it interrupts your personal intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's like having your mother-in-law come and live with you and get in the way of your relationship with your wife. If you treasure your mother-in-law's conversation. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's To not count as dung means to treasure something more than knowing Christ. And if you treasure something more than knowing Christ, it's going to get in the way of you knowing Christ. This is Paul's testimony in correction to the Judaizers who said you could be justified by your works. You could come to know God by your works. Paul says, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. It's by grace through faith alone. Okay, now. Coming then to verse 12, what is Paul doing here? Not only did these false teachers teach you could be justified by the works, by your works, he also was saying that these legalists believed and taught you could also be perfected by your works brought to some full level, level of spiritual maturity by your works. Perfectionism, you might call it, as though the race is already won. Supposedly, based on what Paul's doing here, these false teachers were teaching that you could, by your own effort of obedience and your own adherence to some outside standard, come to some level of perfection. And it was all of you. And Paul's going to correct that because Paul combats that perfectionism in verses 12 through 14 with his his personal testimony. Because you see how many times I is used in verse 12 and 13 and 14. I, 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 verse 15, let us. Okay. So he's going to use as a corrective and a preventative to help the Philippians not be swayed by the false teachers by saying, Philippians, look at me. Look at me, follow me. I I'm not justified by works and I'm not perfected by works. Because look at what it goes on. In verses 12 through 16, what we're gonna look at is to run the race and to run it well. We must beware, we must we must know ourselves and we must know why we were saved. That's just very simple, but this is what he's bringing out here. He says, we must beware of ourselves and our walk, and that's in relationship that we must know also why I was saved. Okay, He's going to give his example, his own example in 12 through 14, and he's going to follow that with his exhortation in 15 and 16. Read with me, follow along, 12 through 16. Not that I've already obtained it, or have already become perfect. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude. God will reveal that also to you. Finally in 16, however, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Look at verse 12, and, and we have to, in order to run this race, we must know ourselves. Look at the example the Apostle Paul gives us in verse 12, and he starts with a negative here. He says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained, not that I have already come to acquire, not that I've already come to to, to, uh, to acquire this whatever in the context. Now, notice in verse 12, not that I have already. The, the word already implies that there is an expectation of getting it in the future. I haven't got it yet already. Um, what is it that he hasn't taken, that he hasn't acquired yet? Look back at verse 11. He says there that in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, okay not that I've already obtained. So he's basically saying here that he hasn't come to the resurrection body. Well, no kidding. Right? But it's interesting, by the time he writes Philippians, he's been in change it could be up to five years. And it's been a few years before that that he probably saw the Philippians. So he's writing to a beloved Philippians. Remember how they sent gifts to him to maintain his ministry through the book of Acts. There's a real tight relationship here. They haven't seen him, though, eye to eye. But he hears about these, these troublemakers coming with false teaching. He writes to them and says, though I haven't, basically, I haven't seen you, I assure you, I'm not in a